from runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 558, SQL Q&A panel from SQL Intersection Fall 2017, recorded Tuesday, October 31st, 2017. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio here in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand for the last day of SQL Intersection, and we always like to close out with the SQL Q&A. And so we're uh, all together. I'm going to be your mic runner again because, uh, goodness knows, I need the exercise. And we have the usual suspects, the usual troublemakers, of course, uh, Mr. Randall. Hello. And Ms. Tripp. Hello. Thank you. And then I recognize Aaron and Mr. Dave Plath. and Jez and Tim at the end of the line. So we have an array of experts and one of the worst and slides us. known to man. Up on the screen, the potential topic ideas, followed by a whole bunch of four-point font on... Shut up, Richard. Just a catalog. When did you last present? Of everything, <laughs> everything SQL Server. So any quick lead-off questions, or should I make fun of them first? I need, I need a hand, and I will run the mic oh. to you. Oh, there we go. Most people take me up on making fun of them first. <laughs> Here you go, sir. So we're about to look at 2017, and we want to test it somewhere, and we've never gone to the cloud. What do we do? How do we test in the cloud? What can we do, the cheapest method, to bring up a test environment and throw some workload in it? Great question. I like that one. So set up a VM in Azure and and install SQL Server? Yeah, so if you just want to test in the cloud, I mean, Azure Virtual Machines, you can spin them up. You configure your network, install SQL Server 2017. You can put developer edition so you're not licensing. You're just paying for the compute. And with a virtual machine, you just spin up, run the testing that you need. When you're done, you shut it down, deallocate it so you're not incurring those costs. So you can literally stand it up, run through all your regression, all your testing. It's up for several hours. Power it down when you're not doing the testing, and you're, you're paying very little compute. So how much would it cost to run for a month? So you had a customer, and how much did it cost for one month for someone to do it? Because i got to go back to my boss, and i got to say, hey, 2017's got some cool stuff. i got to throw it in the cloud. i got to prove to you that it's going to work great. And I want to use the cloud to test because, you know, I can do it after hours, and I can always log in, whatever. So that's a big, it depends. I mean, how big of a machine are you standing up? How many vCPU? How much memory? What type of storage are you configuring? When the virtual machine is on, you're paying for compute, whether you're using it or not. So when you say for a month, well, are you leaving it up 24-7 for those 30 days? Or are you going to spin it up during business hours when you're pushing a workload to it, actually doing the testing? When you're done, you power it down and deallocate. Then you're only paying whatever the the hourly compute cost is while that those machines are up. Your storage, you'll pay for what's being allocated, but storage costs are, are fairly cheap. Your your big expense is going to be the the compute. I mean, so based on the vCPU, I mean, you can stand up a, a single vCPU, three and a half gig of RAM you know, machine, 50 bucks. And that's for the full month. You want to go up to something much larger, you're getting into eight, 16 vCPU, 100 and something gig of RAM. You could be looking at a $2,000 a month machine. But again, that's for 744 hours. 
if you're only using it eight hours a day, you know, reduce that by a third, you're, you're talking several hundred dollars. So it can be done inexpensively. And then you can set up like a JSON script or something to you know, power everything up. When you want to do the test, you press a button and shut it all down. And you can use Azure Dev Test Labs as well, which allow you to create a group of users and that those users can create X amount of virtual machines at a time. The machines can only fall within certain sizes, tiers, categories, so you can control the costs. And on top of that, so say that someone in the DBA group or the developer group is testing something with 2017 and they they just shut down the server instead of stopping it on the portal or running the PowerShell command to stop it. Um, if you have machines in dev test labs, you can actually set schedules for when machines turn on and when they turn off and you aren't able to run them outside of those hours. So that can be helpful too. Is there different pricing for dev test labs versus regular IaaS VMs? And right. then yes. So if you specifically look up dev test labs, use your favorite search engine on your favorite browser, pull that up, dev, dev test labs, and they will, not only do they have pricing details on this, they also have a calculator that it makes it a lot easier for you to figure out. And along with what Jess said about shutting down both actual responses that you can script it, they've made it also very easy. They have a plug-in policy. So I could say, if I forget, shut down every machine, let's say at nine o'clock at night. So if you have that issue, you've been pounding on something all day on Friday, you forget, that way you're, it's not running all weekend and you don't have the, that massive cost. So my question to David is in the dev test labs, do you still get the same IO level performance that you would in a production style machine if you're doing that level of testing? So they've added machines over time. You'd have to go back and check to see which machines fit in the dev test labs and what performance levels they are versus what you have in the, each of the regions. Now, That's and I'm going to hope, just coming back to your original question, that you're testing for feature behavior, that you know your app's going to function correctly with a new version of database. You're not testing performance or anything that you couldn't repeat easily because you're running in the cloud anyway, and you don't really have control over the hardware. Right, or you have a particular subset that you want to see if that piece can be lifted off of a primary cluster and then moved to the cloud, and you want to test that feature possibly with Column Store or with some of the new features of 2017. And so you want to put it up in the cloud, and you want to do it in the most economical way because you got to go to the boss and ask for his credit card. Yeah, so there, there's a couple of things to think about in, in addition to the straight-up pricing that you have in the dev test labs and even just a regular VM. First of all, you have a lot of expertise that's been given. When you go and pick a gallery item out of Azure, those images are specifically optimized with best practices from the product team that you have all the trace flags and everything that you need set up for like, let's say, warehouse workloads versus, let's say, OLTP workloads. Not only do you have that, but you have a lot of flexibility. I love the idea that I can start up a machine ramp it up, pound away on it, and then completely tear it down and also have the ability to completely rebuild it exactly the way it was whenever I want it. And that is a tremendous amount of flexibility that is very hard to duplicate on-prem. Which I guess means it opens the door to you get a new test request or something coming through, and it's only going to take you a couple of minutes to get back to a place where they can test it again. Plus, like the always-on talk that I had this week, there's an entire VM template that you can use that creates the domain controllers, the uh, cloud witness blob store, all of the SQL servers that you want, and then you can customize it as you see fit. Then I can script that entire solution out, completely destroy that environment, and any time I want to, I can just recreate it. 
even a complex environment like that. You could even have a SharePoint farm tied to it. You could do that as well. So you could recreate not just your SQL environment, but your entire application environment for load testing. And then once you shut it down, you're not paying for anything until you ramp it back up again. Beats the heck out of owning hardware, doesn't it? Another question? I thought I saw a hand over here. There we go. So for partitioning, are there any... <laughs> any... <laughs> Any recommendations on using the same function and scheme on multiple tables? Is that a no-no or no, is that I, recommended? No, that's a great question. Hold on, hold on. I need to start the clock. <laughs> Seven and a half minutes is the record for one of Kimberly's answers in the run as radio this closing one is really Q&A. simple. I know, but you can still go seven minutes on it. Riff, probably, baby. Riff, probably. On. And have you seen any issues with doing so, such as the merge not functioning and locking up the entire <laughs> database like us. <laughs> so part of the reason that Microsoft created a standalone function and a standalone scheme, as opposed to using the same kind of syntax that Oracle used for partitioning, which is that the partitioning structure is part of the table's definition, is so that you can reuse functions and schemes across objects. Now, there's two different ways to do that. You can have a a bunch of functions that use the same scheme, and they are all then said to be what we call storage aligned. You can have a function with multiple schemes, and then the objects that use those different schemes are actually said to be aligned, but not storage aligned, because the scheme is putting them on different drives. The one thing that you have to be careful of if you have, let's say, an order headers table and an order details table, both being partitioned with the same scheme, is that when you want to split or merge, you have to be setting it for both of the structures at the same time because that merge has to happen on both of those schemas or that split. And you also have to be very careful that if you're doing, for example, a merge, that what you're merging is empty. Otherwise, it will cause massive problems in the database. So, so there's a lot that you have to coordinate across possibly two or three or 20 tables. And if that's not well coordinated, I promise you it'll be a world of pain. So it might be in a lot of ways better to create separate functions and schemes so that your maintenance and management isn't so tightly intertied and, and so dependent. But that is the reason that they did it is so that you would get the simplicity and the reuse and the ability to split and merge across multiple very similar structures and for SQL to know that they are properly aligned from a performance perspective as well. So there is a reason for it, but it adds another level of complexity to your management. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, come on, that was yes in just over two minutes. That's a pretty fast yes. Oh, you were, you were tracking that too? I, always, <laughs> always. It's like a rule around here. See, you guys don't understand this, but every single time I start an answer, they start a clock on me. <laughs> And every year, no, I don't. That was two minutes. That was like two minutes. That was only two it's minutes. Early it's, it's early days. It's early days. Seven and a half. You know, it's a different league. Somebody ask a question on indexes. Then we'll no. break the record. <laughs> <laughs> then we're in trouble. Did you want to add to that, David? No, that's the correct answer. I agree with Yes. <laughs> the other hand, I'll take the one up front so I don't have to run as far. But I'll be over there in a minute. Um, with the containers being in 2017, do you see it making its way out of dev and ever, ever into a production environment? 
Because a lot of people seem to use it for dev test. Dev test makes sense. I mean, it makes it a lot easier for putting updates on dev test, but I haven't, I haven't seen a lot of implementation. So I was just talking to a couple of PMs about this last week, actually, and the answer was kind of at this point in time, no. I mean, it's really, it's a dev test thing. It's one usage I've seen is like taking data down from production, pushing it out and being able to make, you know, dev test containers. But yeah, what, what would we use it for production? I don't have a good use case for that. And, and sorry, just to clarify, you're talking about putting SQL Server in a container in a production environment. Because my experience talking to container folks has been that the Windows containers aren't quite ready. The Linux stuff has been out in the field for years and years, and everybody's happy with that. And there are databases that run well in Linux. And, of course, there is a SQL for Linux coming, but it's not really ready either. So you've got... It's ready. Okay, well, ready. Yes. Ready. 100%. It's ready, ready. It's released. 100%. Okay, it's so released. it's out. It's, it's SQL Server 2017. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that would beg the question then. The logical container solution, if I actually want, was talking production databases on containers, knowing the issues that Windows containers have, would be to use a Linux container with a Linux version of SQL Server. And I don't know of anybody who's done that yet. In no, but I could see it for things that aren't mission critical, like not a bank. I would. I can't see a bank putting up an instance of SQL Server. I've seen banks do really daft things. With yeah, SQL well, Server. that's true. Banks have done yeah. daft things. But if you're running a blog off of a SQL Server database, so I could see it for for things that are less mission critical than you know your your primary line of business. Yeah, if you're running a blog on SQL Server, we have to have a different conversation. Actually, like, no, how about are, stop that? So some people, <laughs> most people, use WordPress, but there are other there yeah. are other blogging platforms that work on SQL Server, and even there are WordPress ports. That use SQL Server. Really? Right. Yeah, they don't work very well, but okay. I no. Mean, I assume they'll get there somehow. I mean, WordPress defaults to MySQL for a reason, right? It's a blog. So True. <laughs> and and But you could consider a container, a Linux, you know, an Ubuntu container running SQL Server kind of like MySQL. Yeah. Just better. But I mean there's a reason the database people are conservative. When you're wrong, everybody's very angry with you. So I don't think anybody's going to rush off and do this anytime soon. It's it's going to it's, we're going to spend some time testing these environments. I, I think you'll be surprised. I yeah. think you'll see people do it just because it's so flexible. It's so easy to move them. It's so easy yes. to set them up, spin them up. I, I mean, I much certainly I put my dev hat on where it's like we're enjoying containers because it's a great mechanism for making consistent architecture from dev to test to production. So it's like there's a whole class of problems that just go away because you're you're building code in an environment that more or less matches production architecturally. And when there are differences, they're easy to measure. Like you know where they are. Another thing that you could see it being used for is something like ASP state. Mm-hmm. So currently people run their ASP state session database on one of their regular instances of SQL Server. Yep. Why is that? Ha- it doesn't perform well and it no. takes resources away from your actual production workload. Why can't that live on something like a container? Because if it goes away, you just spin up a new one. You don't, you haven't lost anything. Yeah. And if you're that clever, you scale out. Like again, storage state in SQL Server is just not that good an idea. It's not, you know, I, it hurts me to hear people using SQL Server for that blobby kind of storage. Like to me, that's not the best use of SQL Server. There are better dedicated tools for that. And I'm, I'm coming at it from an old web performance guy where, yeah, I used to run instances for state management that you needed to be able to kill and recover because they break. That's, that's reality. But storing in SQL just seemed like a, you're going to jump through a bunch of hoops that are expensive and time consuming and you don't need them. Not that I'm emotional about these things. All right. Now I'll run. We hear that the database mirroring is deprecated 
and we are supposed to use high availability groups. Our company's business, the applications, they do not warrant that kind of complexity using Windows cluster and then using high availability group. Mirroring is a good choice for us as a kind of HA and DR way to, to, to do our DR business. So what's the prospect of keeping database mirroring around longer, if not forever? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So with SQL Server, what was deprecated, I believe, in 2016? Was 12 deprecated? Yeah. Wow, it's been a while. So it's, yeah, it's still around. So in 2017, 2016, 2017, you have the ability to do a basic availability group. Essentially matching the capability that you have for database mirroring. So I have a availability group. I can put a, a database in it, and then I have the ability for failover at the database level, right? Not automatic failover, but providing that you're getting that basic capabilities. The reason that was done was because database mirroring was deprecated. Now, that being said, you are getting some additional benefits with this as well. Part of which has been the transport layer was completely rebuilt. So it is far more efficient. Even though we had the same synchronous and asynchronous modes with database mirroring, it's far more efficient with, with always on availability groups, even in the basic configuration. Do you get charged for so the second long, node that you can't, it's in recoveries, so you can't read from, you can't do anything, do you get charged? As long as that instance is only used for disaster recovery. Now, what surprises a lot of folks is, is if you start backing up from that database, the you're no longer using it for pure DR. Yeah, we're I'm talking pure DR. Pure DR, yes. You're not that you're you're covered. That was the same for mirroring as well. So your mirror was free as long as you only used it to fail over to when a disaster and you had a certain number of days to fail back. And there was an interesting question I used to get asked, which was, what if I want to run a consistency check on that mirror? Create database snapshot on a consistency check to make sure that that database doesn't have any corruption in it. By the letter of the licensing law, that's now you're doing something on it. And that's not free. However, I think that's a real gray area for mirroring where you should be able to run a CheckDB on your database to make sure that it's okay to fail over to and not have to pay for that. You're just making sure it's doing its job. Just make sure that you fail back before you get audited. <laughs> and, and, and you're good. Yeah, I mean, a, a licensing team would tell you to not accept user connections and just allow the system to do what it's supposed to do. I believe another part of that question that you mentioned was not having to set up the clustering pieces, etc. I don't know if there's a good answer to that, but there are some improvements with Windows Server 2016 and running something like a 2016-2017 basic availability group on that in which we can do domain lists availability groups. So not necessarily fully removing the need for clusters, but removing some of the domain requirements as well. So we are trying to make it more flexible overall. Even though the feature was deprecated, it is still fully available in 2016, fully available in 2017. So for now, even if you do in the next year or two, do upgrade to one of those versions, it's still completely available, no need to change anything. From a former Microsoft perspective, I don't see them getting rid of it anytime soon because there's a huge user base on it, right? It's like if you think back to SQL Server 2005, we deprecated text and text and image, and they're still there, and you can still use them 12 years later. Are you using this for automatic failover? No, 
not an automatic, purely disaster recovery. Yes. So what would be the objection of using basic always-on availability groups? Using? What would be the reason to not use always-on availability groups? Or is that what your question is? Well, you need to set up Windows cluster. And right. So I want to make sure that we that th this is understood. And, and um, I want to go along with what Jess said. Keep in mind, you are not clustering SQL Server. We are leveraging the cluster service at the Windows level to communicate failure. And we do this with the quorum and SP server diagnostics to state health and whether or not you need to be in a state of automatic failover. Now, with that being said, you're not using it for automatic failover. It's manual failover, right? Yes. For disaster recovery. Yes. I would go always on availability groups. And all you're dealing with is a cluster service. It's yeah. a very simple architecture. And keep in mind, every, for everybody, clustering has been around for an extremely long time. This is a well-oiled machine on Windows. That's the point. For, for you to set up cluster, you need two sets of hardware. You need two sets of Windows license. Well, that would be the same for database well. mirroring or for a cluster or for an availability group. You always need two servers. They always require Windows Server licensing. Yes. Your your database mirroring is still has two Windows servers that are both being licensed also. Agreed. That's true. However, still, if I have my way, I would rather set up the cluster in one data center clustered, and then I still DR to a second data center. And if and I do just mirroring, I don't need that. Uh, I just uh, want to make sure there's... you. There's no SAN necessary for this. This is, this is the database is replicated just like database mirroring. So your lot from a Windows and hardware perspective does not shift between mirroring and always on. Exactly the same. Hopefully that helps. And I, and from a someone who has been working with clustering and failover clusters and availability groups for a long time. Windows Server clustering has gotten so much better since even the 2008 days. It's Now it's fairly simple to set up. There's a lot of good tools around it. It's much more reliable. So if that's what was holding anyone in the organization back was, you know, Windows clustering was terrible, it's gotten significantly better. And setting up a Windows Server cluster is so much simpler than setting up a failover cluster in SQL Server. It's like 15 fewer steps. Hope that's true, but uh, not to shame my system admins. Uh, a few years ago, I had <laughs> cluster set up not the correct way so that it works to a certain level, but not fully. But I agree that technology has advanced. <laughs> Yeah, you definitely want a newer version of Windows. Is that Windows clustering is a lot more pleasant than the later versions of Windows. Sir, you had a question. All right, see if I um, remember exactly. I uh, Kind of a two-part question. Hopefully the answer is the same for both. Uh, security related. We will assume that my security department has suddenly got this massive head and decided that they're going to force upon the enterprise certain guidelines. So one particular guideline is every single new server that gets pushed, so it gets built by the engineering team, goes to the security team, goes through audit, 
its audit is that if there is a single solitary Windows update that gets released before that box enters production, then it has to go through security audit again and have the new updates put on that box again before production release actually takes place. So imagine you build a box on the 1st, you install your software by the 15th, you get ready to go by the 30th, before the 31st gets there, before that box gets released to production, you get another scan. If you're missing a single update, you cannot go to production. You have to run those updates. So those are new boxes, boxes that are currently in place. So they've been running for a long, long time, get audited monthly. And once again, if you're missing a single audit, the department is held accountable to have those updates pushed forward. Now, if we take it simply from a SQL standpoint, so we will assume all Windows updates are automatically pushed and hopefully that goes well, right? There are no bugs. Now they're saying if there is a single, a SQL update that is released, um, and what is that every third Tuesday, right? That now you have 30 days to get it into production. Whoa. Meaning before the next release, which is a month later, the third Tuesday, whatever, you have that long to go through test and then get it into production. So this is a new attitude, if you will, that I'm currently dealing with. I would love to have your opinions on how I might be able to push back on my security director, who, by the way, his head will not fit through any of these doors any longer since WannaCry came out, and he's now got this this extra level of power. So it, it might be it might be a reasonable request. Are these like important security based scenarios only or these are all updates? He runs Nessus and if it pops, the world is ending and it has to be installed now. So this could be these could be updates that don't necessarily apply to the system. Absolutely. For that matter, they can be updates which deal with a very specific scenario that given our current environment in no way would be would affect us. But it doesn't matter because he doesn't even understand. All he understands is Nessus told him it's a security risk. Install it. Do, do you have a premier support technical account manager? I, I would like to say yes, though, not by that title. Okay. If you do. Okay. What th- they can help with is giving you information on what the security bulletins are. Cause we, we, we put this information out there. And we're also going to give out what the what the bulletin, what the update is, what the level of risk is, and what our recommendations are. I would lean heavily against installing any update, even the optional stuff that may or may. I mean, it could be a feature you're not even taking any advantage of. Exactly. And rebooting a box, in my opinion, is not a benign act. Like you can have some issue to just rebooting all the time. So it may seem like you're making things healthier. The argument I would have by installing all this stuff and having a change. I mean, what does your change control process look like? I would be my next question around that. There is risk involved in, in rebooting machines and applying them. Well, that's kind of where I'm stuck at right now. So the, the updates will come out and now I'm stuck with X number of hours reviewing every single solitary single update, determining whether or not they're valid for my environment and submitting with documentation to each and every single one of those as to why it should or should not happen. An amazing amount of extra workload. So are they, are they funding this extra work? 
Yeah. Are they are they allowing that's, you? That's are hilarious. They, are Bob. they allowing? Yeah. Are they allowing you to have extra downtime uh, from your SLAs to be able to reboot these SQL servers every that, so often? That's why night times and weekends are for that extra work. And then as far as the uh, the actual reboots are concerned, we do have a fairly extensive process in order to get a box rebooted and make sure that everybody's aligned on that. So I feel comfortable about that piece of it. Okay. It's just the the attitude of if you have a security risk, it needs to be done now. I'm hoping to get a little bit of advice on that I can take back and say, okay, we need to back off a little bit at least, maybe do a quarterly or or something where we're not Johnny on the spot, because at some point we're going to blow something up. We're going to miss a testing that, cycle. Right Something's going to happen and it's going to end poorly. Yep. So the updates that come out for SQL Server every month, most of the items in a cumulative update are not security related at all. The, the number of fixes that come out for SQL Server in a, any given year is for security. It's for security purposes. Small. Maybe three? Really that low? Because I think yes. I've already got three and I've only been gone a week. That I have to research when I get SQL back. Server? Security updates? Security updates for SQL updates Server? Or security updates? I, I think there's security updates. I, I, I have it. You and I, theoretically, we could look at it after, you know, I don't, offline, I don't. if you will, just, just to determine whether or not I'm losing my mind here. If you have one Office product on that box, you will see a significant more of these kind of updates. For SQL Server, you're just not, you're not going to see them. But if he wants to apply these updates every time they come out once a month, he has to budget regression testing and all of the things that go along with that. You can't just apply an update to SQL Server and then go to lunch. Like you've got to test what it, what it impacted. So if he needs that to be there every month, then he has to provide budget so that you can have regression testers that pound the crap out of your application and make sure that you didn't break anything. But you can't just apply those blindly. He's throwing that on the departments. He's basically making it mandatory for the departments. But I, I totally agree with you. So and I, we do have a process in place. And so what you see happening, at least in my organization, is a lot of departments scrambling rapidly to stay on top of I, the request from the security department. I guarantee you, if you look at a SQL Server update that he wants to apply right now, there isn't a security item in it. Yeah, The we SQL have. Server updates, there are so few oh, issues with SQL Server security. Because <laughs> I think you could very well be right. Take a, take a look and see if any of them are actually secure. But I mean, as a guy who's dealt with a lot of security stuff, building the spreadsheet that shows the workflow involved in doing a set of regression tests, like actually adding a cost that each time I have to do this application, it costs this many dollars and this much time. Now, I'm not pushing back to push back. I'm just wanting to show the additional costs because quickly that, you know, everybody wants 100% uptime until you put the price tag on it. Then suddenly 99 is good, right? Like, because the, the cost drops a hundredfold for 99. No, and, and I felt like what they're imposing on you is any type of CU or anything that comes out needs to be applied right away because they think it's a security risk. But I think the point is most of the, the CUs that come out and any are not security risks. So, so maybe, maybe his not understanding what's happening in those service packs and so forth, or CUs, is the problem. And giving these security bulletins, or the bulletins in general, and describing that there, does it ever say there's but, no security risk? Like, no, but okay. I, think, I think there's been one security bulletin for SQL Server this year. I'll pull it right up and we'll take a look after afterwards. Right. Thank you. Being that I worked in information security for a $40 billion bank, I've done this. I've been on both sides of it. I was the DBA manager for a team that had this stuff shoved down my throat. 
And when, you know, Qualys, Nexus, all these systems, I mean, they do a scan, they come back. And if there's been an update, whether it be an office product, SQL, it's going to come back. So whether they're looking at this saying, hey, there's an update that needs to be applied, those updates have different levels of categories, whether it's a, a critical security update or whether it's an you know, optional type update. So I don't know from your information security, SAR, whether he just wants everything done or or you know, what the approach is. But the thing is, even though there's maybe a security update for your SQL server, is your SQL server sitting in the DMZ? No. It's behind firewalls. So those risks are already mitigated. So what I had to do is go back and say, you know what, there's updates in here that we're not going to apply because they don't apply. So it, the risk is already mitigated. So there, there is pushback that you can you know, push back on this guy. Same time, I'm not doing a critical update on any SQL server that has not gone through dev and QA in the process. So if the compromise I made with the bank was, all right, these updates will deploy to development within 30 days of them being released. And but then, then it's kind of out of your hands because now it's in the QA chain. It's going right. to take some time. So, so it's going to go through dev and then, okay, well, the QA department, they need to go through, do all their regression. Well, you know what? Some of these products take 45 to 60 days to go through and regression test. Sure. If you changed, you know, a, a font, I mean, it's just that level of detail. Once it gets through that, then we'll go through change control. And we had a ridiculous change control board where everybody's just poking holes. They called it the CAC, Change Authorization Committee. And if then you got the blessing, you could you could make the change. But the information securities are wanted, oh, every weekend we're patching, rebooting the whole data center because, you know, th there was some update. But, you know, pushback. You, if you have questions and you need the support, you know, we can, we can try to give you some information. But it, you're not the only department that has or company that has information security. And, yes, Qualys, Nexus, the, the products are great. They help identify these issues. But there is industry standards and, and best practices with, with doing this stuff. If it's I, the I, and I do find it extremely useful when I'm talking to those folks to use their language back to them. It's like right. you are increasing risk to the company by demanding this. Right? Yep. That is an increased risk. And that, you know, that makes them squirm. He's, he really is trying to make him safe. Like, let's just presume this guy actually is intending to keep the company safe. So when you press back on you're making the company less safe, that's a different conversation now, right? It's like, I'm all in for safety, but not the expense of safety. Yeah, but when it's the next big thing that comes out that, oh my gosh, there, there is this vulnerability and, you know, we're all going to be patching and rebooting for that next, you know, what was the wanna cry something? I mean, the, Don't you know, worry, there'll be another. That big, yes, we're going to suck it up. We're going to get in the data center. We're going to start patching these things. But I haven't seen something like that for SQL Server since Slammer. Yeah. Right. Yep. 2000. Sir. Yeah, we're kind of in the same boat as you are, and uh, we had to go through the same type of exception list, and we went to quarterly. And also another thing I can give is advice, because I've been living the same pain you have, is, is you'll see an update come out for SQL Server, and then every second Tuesday is Patch Tuesday, but every third Tuesday is CU a Tuesday. Right. So if I see something in patch Tuesday that's for SQL Server, I wait and I look to see if a CU comes out 
magically the next week and use that that has more features than possibly the patch has because there's a difference in the SQL Server version and then push that one through regressing testing to maybe get some of the other things that I want to look for and really am holding off on because of the time and effort it takes to get there. So just throwing that out there. And Avanti Pro Support is what we use, and it clearly denotes that this is a new CU, but there is nothing security-related here that needs to be applied, and the pressure is backed off. And that came from Avanti. Yeah. That's cool. That's useful. Give us one moment here to pay the bills. This episode of Run As Radio is brought to you by the Humanitarian Toolbox. Humanitarian Toolbox builds open source software for disaster relief organizations. One of our leading projects called Already focuses on getting volunteers into the right place at the right time. HTBox is deploying this application in the field in the first half of 2017, and they need your help. Go to hdbox.org for more information or to make a tax-deductible donation. HDBox is a 501c3 U.S. registered charity. And we're back. It's Run As Radio. Richard Campbell here in Vegas at the SQL intersection doing the SQL Q&A. And we had a question over here. Yeah, general question. Which is your woe feature from 2016, 2017, or Azure database? Yeah, you're like, wow, I need to go to uh, this. It's For me, it's got to be Query Store. It's an absolute game changer. The whole room's nodding on that one. Absolutely. Query Store. I say Query Store as well. Query Show Store. Hands. Query Store. All right. Except. There we go. So for me, I like Query Store as well. I mean, it's an awesome feature for performance tuning, but being the security background, finally having a product that we can encrypt data within the storage engine, within nice. SQL Server, that if you don't have the key, you're not seeing the data. I mean, TDE was great to be able to check the box for auditors and examiners, but to me, it did absolutely nothing except backup encryption. Well, it was just at rest. It was stuff at rest, right? Anybody could somebody, see it in the database. If somebody came in with a forklift yep. and took the whole storage array, great. That's an awesome feature. But you know, a random disk that went bad, then being able to scrub data and get stuff off of it was, wasn't that huge. But being able to truly encrypt the data in in the database and the other security features with dynamic data masking and row-level security, uh, I'm really enjoying those additional features. But yeah, Query Store is the, the top. So I'm going to ask us a question. What would our second favorite feature be? <laughs> so for me, it's reporting services, the rebuild of reporting services. Other than Query Store, what do you all think? At Column Store. Finally, the ability to have non-clustered row-based indexes with clustered Column Store or vice versa, a clustered row store with a non-clustered Column Store that's read-write, but not having all the restrictions. So, yeah. And all the batch mode fixes everything, so... I bet Aaron's answer is going to be the string split function. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron, you've been awfully quiet in the favorite features list, sir. All right. So for us, it was also a clustered column store. And the reason was we've had a hard time for a long time scaling our software to manage 500, 1,000, 2,000 servers because mm-hmm. the data volume just ends up getting so big. And we've implemented for our biggest customers clustered column store indexes. And we had been, for the last two years, we had been planning ways that we could solve this problem. We turned clustered column store indexes on, and it's problem went away. It's pretty powerful. It literally solved itself. Like second we, favorite? Oh, so my, f- uh, always encrypted. Okay. So this, this always encrypted solves the problem where you have data that's decrypted on the wire and yep. in memory and at the app and like anybody, you get man in the middle attacks. The only, like with trans, with TDE, it's only on disk and, 
even with column level encryption, you can't protect it from a sysadmin. So if you have right. a sysadmin, they have access to the data, they're God. With always encrypted, you can separate duties so that you have... We're uh, starting to see this just enough administration where you don't, just because your sysadmin doesn't mean you have all powers. Right. And what re- is required now for you to hack into encrypted data is collusion. You have to have the certificate manager collude with the sysadmin right. and combine that power to get the access, which was never the case before. You could always have one single actor. Right. For me, my second thing would, would not be an actual feature. It's the fact that in 2016, the SQL team had a bunch of people, instead of building a new sexy feature, actually go back and fix a bunch of internals bottlenecks. Yes. Okay, the whole it just runs faster thing, where hmm. they, they, they identified a bunch of spin locks that were problems and latches that were problems and fixed them. I think that was fantastic because for so many years, the SQL team, every time a new release comes out, there's a bunch of stuff that remains broken, right? And they actually spent a whole bunch of time fixing older stuff. And I thought that was cool. Not all. They didn't fix Just everything. Stuff. And you, yeah. can, you can thank the cloud for a lot of that. Because Absolutely, because of the scalability work they right. had to do for Azure. Yeah, so, yeah. so being cloud first, a lot of these features, just want to talk about that for a second. A lot of the features and stuff that you're using, when you see SQL Server 2017, it was generally available, what, the second or the third, right? It was earlier in the month. Yeah. Those features have been pounded on for a very long time. And to Paul's point, when they're trying to get these technologies to scale on the cloud, they're re-looking at stuff and going, wait a second, we shouldn't have been doing it like that. That component is no longer necessary. We don't need to check for this anymore. And it gets more refined and better and scales better. It certainly happened to Exchange and SharePoint as well. I mean, cloud first just is fundamentally changed the product. Yeah, you also asked about uh, Azure SQL database. And I would say one of my favorite parts about that is just the cloud-first development in general. And it's the fact that we have so many SQL databases and we're collecting so much telemetry on them. I think they said, you know, terabytes a day and we're processing that. And that's allowing us to understand at a much finer level how people are using our services, how people are using the features, how hardware responds to that, which is why we're able to introduce new features like the automatic tuning that I was talking about with uh, plan regression and In SQL Database, we even have automatic tuning for indexes, where it can automatically create better indexes and drop unused indexes. And I think that's my second favorite thing. Question back here. So what are the differences of uh, having a database on AWS compared to Azure? I don't know. I have not used AWS in the last four years. So one of my other department is planning to move their databases to RDS. So I want to know. <laughs> yeah, they're talking about moving SQL Server databases into VMs on AWS? Uh, not VMs, the RDS. Oh, okay, to RDS. Okay. So different product. I don't know if anybody has an experience with the product. Uh, Dano may appear to be the correct answer. Well, I, I appreciate professionals that know enough to say when they don't know, right? That's what real professionals look like when they don't know. So, Sorry. I'm sure there's an Azure, there's sure there's an Amazon conference around here somewhere. But, so here's an interesting data point. So we have, we have a lot of clients, consulting clients. Yep. We have a whole bunch of people that are doing stuff on Azure. We have none that are doing stuff on RDS. Interesting. That, but they are doing stuff on AWS. Yes. We have some on AWS, right. but not but on not RDS. In RDS. We have customers all the time that ask us for our Azure SQL database solution. We've maybe had three customers in the last two years ask us when we're going to support RDS. Interesting. 
It just doesn't come up. It's not that big of a deal. I, I mean, my experience has been that greenfield startup types are very interested in Amazon and that existing enterprises are more prone to Azure. That they already have volume license agreements with Microsoft, like they're already doing these things and they're looking to what parts of their business make sense to run in the cloud and they'll, they'll run it in the Microsoft cloud where. And that, that doesn't mean scratch. there's anything different. That just yeah. means that the perception is different. Yeah. I think, I think you're exactly right. And, and certainly it's reflected in the community bases that are for the different cloud options. All right. Now, when it comes to just AWS versus Azure, AWS, their compute, you know, running SQL server. I mean, it's SQL server running on somebody else's machine. I mean, it's no different than on-premises virtualization, Azure virtualization. At that point, you're looking at overall IO scale, compute scale. I mean, it's just SQL Server on a Windows OS. So, and we do have customers both running Azure virtual machines, AWS virtual machines, Rackspace virtual machines. I mean, it's, yeah. it's just somebody else's data center at that point. That's a good point. So something to think about. So while you have this solution, is there any chance that at some point you might say, you know, I, I might want to have a Azure SQL database off on the side to do some other processing. And maybe I want to use Azure DW for data warehousing and I'll create a semantic model in front of that with a data catalog and we'll do it for this kind of solution. That you get easily in the Azure fabric and the Azure framework. And it's, you're going to be looking at a much different world in a different offering scenario and on another platform. There's a lot more flexibility in Azure. And I think that's probably why we see what y'all's experience is, is that there's just a lot of flexibility. So most people gravitate towards that, that scenario. On the other side. Just a, a short question. Are there going to be any deprecated features in 2017? Are there any deprecated features? Yeah. I don't think there are. Nothing major. Wow, literally empty. They've I killed or at least threatened all they want to threaten. There's nothing left to threaten. I'm pretty sure the list was empty this time around. And the last time I looked, it actually still had the list from 2016. <laughs> so with the short uh, right. time between the right. releases, I just I don't think they had enough time to shut anything off or, or you know, prepare to start planning to shut it. Or, th- or just thinking that way about yeah. how we're going to revise. Th- I think you'll find like mirroring is a good example and text and end text. You'll, you'll find that most things that are kind of baked into the product and were popular at any point especially with the faster release cycle, those things will be much harder to deprecate and they'll take a lot longer. They'll take many more releases. Gesture's not supported in the next version of SQL Server. Exactly the same list in 2016. We just looked yeah. it up online. No new deprecated Nothing new features. in 2017. There you go. So right. you're not going to lose Straight anything. from the horse's mouth. Real data. How about that? Thank you. Takes all the fun out of it, really. So I can replace you guys with Google, apparently. <laughs> I think they binged it because well, they work for Microsoft. You need to, yeah, you need to. <laughs> oh, did I say that out loud? That's a shame. Okay. Yeah. So I've been a DBA for over eight years now. Where do you see uh, a DBA's career path going in the next eight years? This is very interesting because as Kimberly and I are owners of a, a DBA consulting firm, we get asked by people, are you guys going to have to go out of business because the DBA jobs are going away? And we say, No. <laughs> Basically. No, wait, we can ask Kim and get a seven-minute answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, because there's always going to be on-premises. You know, the, the cloud is growing, and there's going to be a need for DBAs to, ha- to be able to work in the cloud, but there's going to be a need for DBAs. You're not going to have completely unmanaged SQL Server instances running a business. Not in the foreseeable future. So you're going to have DBAs. However, DBAs are going to have to learn some new skills. 
Okay, DBAs are going to have to finally jump on and use extended events instead of trace. They are going to have to start using Query Store okay, to be able to do more performance tuning for themselves. Okay. I think of Query Store more for troubleshooting than anything rather than forcing plans and seeing history. But but yes, I you have to know these tools and, and you have to know the pros and cons because none of these things are a magic go faster. Like even the auto-tuning of indexing and the auto-dropping of indexing we can all come up with cases Absolutely. where that's actually not going to be the most ideal scenario for every environment right. that's out I mean, out look there. at the cardinality estimator that was put into 2014. That was, <laughs> come on, that, that solves was, everybody's problem. That problems. was written as, here's this excellent new cardinality estimator that solves a whole bunch of the problems that the old cardinality estimator has. And, it and what did it do? It created a whole bunch problems, more. Yeah. So DBAs still have jobs, and they're still going to have jobs. So, so I think, I think, I mean, it's, it's like... Any version of SQL Server, there's new stuff, and DBAs have to learn new stuff. So I don't really think that the DBA's career is changing at all. It's just new stuff you have to learn, but you've, and you've always had to do that. Well, and, and you just you can do anything with a SQL Server database, and everybody that even has sometimes similar data in what they're storing is still using it differently. Whenever I talk about performance tuning, it's not just, you know, what are the names of the columns, and then I magically know how to index it. It's the names of the columns. It's the churn of the data. It's the workload of the data. All of these things together are going to require, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that knowledge to tune each of those scenarios very specifically to that workload. And I, yeah, I don't think we're ever going to have the need for DBAs to go away. I, I do think other products and knowing more about data science and knowing more about your analytical capabilities and how to interface with other environments, bring the data to those environments, I, that's very important. But I, yeah, I don't see DBAs going away anytime soon. Yeah, I, I, I agree with all that. I, I do not see the, the role of the DBA ever going away. I do think it's going to change. I think has changed. it definitely will change. It's going to continue to change. I think that when we see things like auto tuning, auto plan correction, you know, auto indexing, you kind of think like, well, what's the role is being diminished? I'll counter that with this. With SQL Server 2016 and up, would you agree that you have a lot more you can do with security now? Mm -hmm. I mean, we didn't have one feature we added. We didn't add two. We didn't even add three. We added more than that. We have row level security masking. Always encrypted, and if you add the cloud, you've advanced threat detection. So now you can be alerted on SQL injection attacks, and then you can look at that and then start quickly figuring out, how do I address these injection attacks? You have a whole lot more to be paying attention to, not less. That's just one example where the role is changing and not be, certainly not being diminished in any way. Some of the things that a, a DBA does are never going to go away. Designing a table. I don't care how much you trust Entity Framework. You're not going to let it design all of your tables. Yes, your friend. Right. So there are things that will be constant. There, there are things that will change. There are things that will go away. Right. But the core, the job that a DBA does. Yeah. Isn't the is real description system. here is in every organization, there will always be people who are stewards of the data of that organization. That's a great way to put it. Where they're, yeah. and they care about where it's gathered from how it's stored, how it's protected, and how it's distributed. It's a stewardship. And, you know, we may throw the administrator's tag on top of it. We may use different tools for it. But ultimately, you need someone inside of an organization who's focused on that problem. And I think you bring up a great point there, Richard, about being a data steward, not a SQL server steward. Mm. 
remember, I mean, no one has less data than they did last year. <laughs> and we all have within our organizations more types of data being stored. They don't all fit nicely into this packaged SQL Server relational model. Even Microsoft recognizes that with some of the new products we're offering. I think that database administrators and database developers need to step a little bit outside of that SQL Server box and understand other types of databases and be able to have, you know, even if we don't know all the fine level details of how they work to the level that we understand SQL Server, we need to be able to have intelligent conversations with our developers and with our vendors about their JSON data stores and their key value pair stores and graph database. So that's a big step that I think a lot of us could take as well. I'm going to add to that absolutely correct. And I would say that one big manifestation we're going to see of that is Cosmos DB, formerly Document DB. Cosmos DB is something I would definitely recommend learning. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with you guys. Uh, I'm glad we're all thinking that way because uh, data is certainly not going away. Some of the mechanisms may change. It doesn't matter whether it's in the cloud or on-premises. It's all the same problem in essence. You're just going to shift in tools. And I think if we think in terms of stewardships, our work is permanent, right? If, you, if you're going to choose to hang yourself on a brand of tool, well, that's your choice. But if you actually are responsible to the organization, then you're always going to be responsible to the organization. And I like having the last word. It's my show. <laughs> a big hand for our panel, please. <laughs> and we'll talk to you next time on Run Ads Radio.